You are listening to Spot On, a health and wellness podcast that breaks through the latest media headlines to provide you with accurate and usable information that is, well, spot on, spot on to meet your needs. I am your host, Dr. Joan Salji-Blake, a nutrition professor at Boston University and the author of the college textbook called Nutrition and You, which is used in colleges across the United States and abroad. So, welcome, Spot On listeners. Do I have a great topic for you today all about sleep? You know, most college students are sleep-deprived. 50% of college students report daytime sleepiness, and 70% attain insufficient sleep on a regular basis. And students rank sleep problems second only to stress in factors that negatively impact their academic performance. So that when I was reading these statistics, I said, we have to get somebody on today to help us with the issue we have with sleep. So before I introduce my guest, I want to first go to the streets and find out what's the issue with sleep. So let's go to the streets and ask, what grade would you give yourself when it comes to getting adequate amounts of sleep daily? I would say six. Usually I go to bed at 12.30 a.m. to 1 a.m. and I will wake up at about 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. At that time, I will still feel very tired, but I cannot fall asleep again because um, I want to check my phone, check the social media. And usually during the daytime, I will not take a nap. I would say I'm a kind of short sleeper. I tend to get five to six hours of sleep per night. And if I do work out or I feel stressed on the previous day, um, I would probably take an extra hour of sleep. And I would give myself a seven out of 10. And the reason why I gave myself a seven is because on weekdays when I have to go to work, I would follow my sleep schedule quite diligently. Um, I tried to get around seven to eight hours of sleep, uh, sleep around 11 to 11.30 p.m., waking up at around seven to 7.30 a.m. in the morning. Uh, however, when I have an off day or during the weekends, every sleeping schedule or plan goes straight out of the window. That's why I l- lowered my grade to 7. Otherwise, if we're grading solely on weekdays, I would give myself a 9 out of 10. We're going to get to the bottom of this because this whole sleep deprivation is really failing us up on multiple levels. So I reached out, I scoured the entire country. I am now in Arizona and I have Dr. Michael Grander. He's a licensed clinical psychologist, a board certified in behavioral sleep medicine. Whoever knew you can get certified in that. He's the director of sleep and health research programs at the University of Arizona, where he's calling in. And he's director of the behavioral sleep medicine medicine program at Banner University Medical Center in Tucson. He is internationally recognized expert in sleep health and has over 150 academic publications and frequently consults with health, technology, athletics, and nutrition companies and organizations regarding sleep, health, and performance. And that's the key right there because it's not just sleep, but how it affects health, and performance. With that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Michael Grander to Spot On. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this. 
I want to tell you, I went to bed early last night. That's great. Because I wanted to be sharp, okay? <laughs> That's good. So, Dr. Michael, help us. My goodness gracious. What I've also read is, the you know, not just college students or young adults, but the population as a whole is getting about one and a half to two hours fewer sleep than it did like 40 years ago. Why are we doing this? I think that there's a reason behind this. And to understand this, I want to take a step back. Sleep is a fundamental part of our biology. People ask me all the time, why do we sleep? Why do we need sleep? Well, the answer is actually kind of boring. We need sleep for the same reason we breathe. We sleep for the same reason we eat because it's just part of how we're built. It's how our body works. It's something that our body requires, and so we need to do it. The real question is why? And there's many answers. There's many things that sleep does because it's so fundamental to how our body works. Yet, we live in a society that sees sleep as unproductive time. That, I think, is the key, especially currently, right now. Productivity is key, and any unproductive time needs to get purged. I mean, there's nothing worse than being unproductive, especially when we're busy, we're overscheduled, and we don't have time. Time is this luxury that nobody seems to have. This has led to cultural and subtle incentives for sleeping as little as possible. We, we reward people for sleeping less. We call them hard workers for getting up early. We call them um, really productive when they work late into the night. We praise people for sleeping less. We, we have phrases about sleep of like, sleep is for the weak, I'll sleep when I'm dead, sleep is for sissies, you know, like, you know, I'll catch up later. All these sort of attitudes are unhealthy. I mean, nobody says things like, you know what, clean air is a luxury for people with too much free time, you know? We don't say that because we know better. We just, you know, we don't have this cultural attitude about air, but we do about sleep and it's dangerous. That's an interesting way that you say that because it's almost like a macho thing. Oh, I'm good. I get by my five hours a night and I can be more productive, which, uh, you know, we're going to talk about. I'm not sure those two go together. Right. But you're right. We have to maybe look at sleep at, for the health benefits rather and a necessity rather than a luxury, as you had said. So that that is unbelievable. So why does your body need sleep? Like what happens when you're sleeping? Yeah. So there's a few important things that happen. So one thing that happens during sleep is rest. And not just that you're active during the day and you're out of gas by the end of the day and then during the night your gas tank replenishes. It doesn't quite work that way. But what does happen during the night is that you're moving less, your heart rate decreases, and what that allows your body to do is perform the maintenance it needs to perform to function properly. So things like cellular repair, immune system function, brain reorganization, the idea of taking on our experiences from the day that our brain reacts to as we go through the day, how does that experience get translated into biology? How does the short-term exposure turn into memory? And how does memory turn into experience? On a biological level, the brain is reorganizing itself during sleep because it's just not efficient to do so while we're also engaging with the environment. It's much more efficient to change your car's oil when you're not still driving. And evolution figured this out long time ago, that all of this sort of rebuilding, repairing, recovery, this sort of stuff is much more efficient to happen when your car's off the road and it can focus its attention there. And so that's why you see sleep touching everything from your ability to stay healthy and not get sick, your ability to have energy during the day, your memory, brain function, productivity, efficiency, muscle function, strength, speed, all of these things are related to sleep because sleep touches all of these systems. All of these systems 
experience wear and tear and stress, and all of them require recovery and maintenance. You know, I love this whole analogy with the car because I'm shopping for a car. (laughs) Let me tell you something. That's a full-time job in itself. But, you know, I was reading that you could, if you really treat your car nicely, and if you really do the oil change and rotate the tires and do all the tune-ups and everything, that baby can last decades longer than if you just abuse it. So it's like, it sounds like the same way that if you take care of your body, but more importantly, just not the muscles of your body, but but your brain, give your brain the rest and the nurturing, whatever, it could be probably more productive and last longer. And just like with a car, you miss an oil change, you're late on an oil change once, you won't notice a difference. You're late on the oil change two or three or four times, You won't really notice much of a difference until the car starts getting on the older side and then it starts falling apart a lot faster. This is the important lesson for the college students that like when you're 20, like you can eat whatever you want. You know, you can do all these sorts of things because your body is much more resilient and it's still growing. It's still forming. And it's in terms of sleep, you might feel way more resilient than you actually really are. But what will happen is it'll catch up. And that's the problem where you may feel it the next day, but you power through and you feel it the next day and you power through. And it's not until 5, 10, 20 years later that all of a sudden this whole lifetime of accumulated choices really starts catching up with you. And that's the problem where you don't get the immediate feedback. So there's something actually really important I want to mention here is that your perception of how impaired you are is not really well correlated with how impaired you actually are. Just like with the car. You miss that oil change in the beginning, you don't notice any difference, but the inner workings of the car are already impacted. It's just they're adaptable and they're flexible. It doesn't rise to the surface yet, but the changes are still there. So there was a great study that was done uh, a few years ago where they took a bunch of younger people who were like in their 20s and a bunch of older people who are more close to retirement age into a sleep lab and they did a sleep deprivation study and they looked at their impairment. And what was really interesting is when they asked them how impaired they are, Actually, both groups rated their impairment at around the same level, that they were moderately impaired due to sleep loss. It turns out that the older group actually overestimated how impaired they were. Actually, their level of impairment was a little bit lower than what they thought it was. So they actually were a little more resilient than they realized. The younger group, though, actually dramatically underestimated their impairment, where they were actually much worse than they thought. They were slower. They were making poorer decisions. But they didn't even realize it. Everyone thought that they were the same level of impairment. It was actually the younger people were dramatically over-impaired. And this bears out, and we did a study looking at drowsy driving, where the people who slept less were more likely to nod off at the wheel. Even if they said they were totally 100% well-rested, they were still more likely to nod off at the wheel if they weren't getting enough sleep. They just didn't even realize that they were impaired. So you think you're getting away with this when you're young and you're not getting away with it. It's going to catch up with you. Can I ask you, if you chronically don't get enough sleep and you're you know, not taking care of your brain like your car, is this permanent? Like if all of a sudden you say, I'm not doing this anymore, I'm going to get better sleep. Can we get better? Yeah. Another way to think about sleep is a lot like diet. Now you're talking, my dear. Okay. Right, right, right. The good and bad news is that if you sleep poorly for a while, so you don't need to make up for every hour you lose by paying that hour back and and there's no interest. It's like with diet. So people ask me all the time, how much sleep do I need on the weekend to make up for not sleeping enough during the week? So if I'm getting five, six hours during the week, how much sleep do I need on the weekend to make up for that and get back to baseline? 
And I say, that's like saying, how much salad do I need to eat on the weekend for making up for eating nothing but hamburgers and pizza during the week? It's like, well, you can eat all the salad you want, but it doesn't quite work that way, especially if you go right back to eating cheeseburgers and pizza on Monday. It's more about balance. Yes, eating the salad on the weekend is probably a better choice than just continuing to eat pizza and cheeseburgers, but it's more complicated than that. It's more about a trajectory, and it's not about like, well, okay, once I pay those calories back, I'm back to baseline. Well, you can't rewrite history, but what you can do is leverage your body's own resilience. So when you sleep deprived people in the laboratory for days at a time, they get worse and worse and worse and worse. One day of recovery, they're dramatically better. By about two days of recovery, like a weekend, but at the end of the weekend, actually their performance looks as if they're not sleep deprived at all. So it looks like within two days, you're going to look normal. But this is the key. If you maintain that better sleep pattern, you will stay higher functioning. And if, and if anything, your functioning might get better. But if you go back to becoming sleep deprived, you don't start from good. You start from almost where you left off. So you weren't actually fully recovered. You were just on your way to recovery. You were able to compensate, but you were still recovering. So it's the same thing with diet, where you can eat poorly for a few days, you eat well for a couple of days, and it sort of gets your body working in the right direction. But if you then start eating poorly again, you're not starting from nothing. You're starting from your point where you're already in trouble. So that's what I would say about sleep. So consistency is going to be key. Yeah. So when you don't sleep, I opened the episode saying that, you know, how not getting enough sleep is so stressful for them. And so how does that play into anxiety and memory? Two things. So sleep and mental health are intricately connected in so many ways. Like this is a rabbit hole that goes down really, really deep. Everything from how your body even perceives pain is different, whether you're well rested or not. How you see the world changes. Your ability to feel positive emotions and negative emotions changes based on your sleep pattern. It's highly intricately connected because sleep is so much about how the brain works. And mental health is so much a downstream process of many aspects of brain health. And sleep impacts many aspects of brain health. And mental health is very much a barometer of some of those. And it also can change how you even interact with the world. So first of all, people who are stressed sleep less and sleep worse. People who are depressed have more insomnia. But lack of sleep and insomnia actually predict new onset or worsening of, of depression, anxiety symptoms. And actually, that relationship is stronger than the other way around. Actually, lack of sleep leads to mental health more then poor mental health leads to poor sleep. You know, Dr. Michael, I read that, you know, even if you have sleep deprived for just one night can result in a 30% rise in anxiety levels. I mean, that is wild. Yeah, I mean, so something that people should know that there's a very big difference between short-term and long-term sleep loss. It's very similar to short-term and long-term pain. Like acute pain is mobilizing. It exists for a reason. It gets you into the clinic. It gets you a Band-Aid. It, you know, you move. You don't just sit there if you're in pain. But chronic pain that's lasted for a while, it's the same pain, but instead of mobilizing, it's debilitating. You're burnt out. You don't want to get out of bed. It's, you don't want to do anything or go anywhere. And sleep loss is similar, where short-term sleep loss 
actually functions differently than long-term sleep loss. Like a night or two of, of poor sleep can have dramatic effects. Actually, both good and bad, because you know survival and evolution worked this into the system. So for example, you can dramatically increase anxiety after a night of poor sleep. Depressed people actually feel less depressed after one night of lack of sleep, even though that wears off after that night. That effect goes away. But in the short term, it sort of numbs your feelings a little bit, especially some of them. So like there's all kinds of things that goes on in the short term, but it's really the long term when things have been going on for a week, two weeks, a month, two months, or years, where you really start seeing this accumulation of even worse problems that are more subtle, but a little less variable. So like that that sharp rise in anxiety might go away just as fast if you're able to get some good sleep. But this low and slow simmering of problems over time might be harder to get rid of. That, that's my worry. You know, you get used to the fact that, I've seen this in myself, where you get a great night's sleep and I'm so productive the, the next day, like I'm banging out all this work. And then when I go a couple nights inadequate sleep, it's taken me longer to do it. But you start to get used to that instead of getting my work done by three, because I'm exhausted, it's taking me to 6 p.m. And I get used to that, that every day becomes 6 p.m. And I forgot was, you know, when I slept, I was finished at three, that I think that's a new norm. And it's really because we're not getting enough sleep. So it's counterproductive, because the next day you want to do well, you know, in a presentation or, or exam or anything in life in general. And uh, you just get used to that this, you're working like, I guess, at a sub optimal level. A lot of people will say, I don't have time to sleep. I work with a lot of students and student athlete groups and like a lot of these student groups. And like, look, I remember being a student, like there's no time, especially time at night. And sometimes asking people to go to bed earlier, if that's what you're asking them. But really what you're doing is you're asking them to give up the one portion of the day they actually have control over where they feel like they can do what they want to do. That's where they have autonomy. So that's a tough thing to ask for. Instead, what if I gave you the time? So for example, we did a study in college students. These were student athletes. So on average, they were spending 40 plus hours a week on their sport in addition to taking a full load of classes. So they had no time. And what we did was we didn't tell them get more sleep. We didn't tell them this is what you need to do. What we did was, you know, we went through this whole process where we taught them about how sleep works so that they can understand how to make decisions about it and how to recognize problems. And based on things they might want to do, here's some tips and tricks on how to actually do what that you're trying to do. What we found was when we taught people how to optimize their sleep a little bit, we found that they actually increased their sleep time by like over an hour. And actually most of that time, they were already in bed. We taught them how to make their sleep more efficient. They were falling asleep faster. They were awake less during the night so that most of their extra sleep time wasn't even eating into their schedule. And the times where it was where they actually you know, did go to bed a little earlier or, or wake up a little later when, when they needed to, how that figured into it, actually they were more productive and efficient where they actually ended up having more time rather than less time. And that's the key. We see sleep as a cost. We go paycheck to paycheck with our sleep from one night to the next, right? It's how much change do I have left in my pocket to pay for sleep? So I've got, all right, I have six hours before I got to wake up. That's how much I got left. Instead, we should be seeing sleep in, as an investment in tomorrow. Just exactly how you started this. We were talking about going to bed. My decision process isn't how much time do I have left at the end of the day? It's how do I need to be tomorrow? What time do I need to go to bed in order to be optimally functional tomorrow? 
And that's the decision to make because when you do that, you actually end up buying yourself more time. So that goes back to the whole thing. You're more productive, so you end up getting more time. Can you share what were some of the things you told the athletes to do to get them more motivated to wind down? Well, in terms of the motivation, one of the things I would tell them is I said, all right, what if I had a workout for you, a routine for you? that could improve your athletic performance by like 10 to 30%, depending on the sport, depending on the study that I'm basing this data on. Would you do it? And they're like, yes. I'm like, all right, what if I told you it took between 30 and 60 minutes and you had to do it pretty much every day, but it would get you those benefits. Would you do it? Yes. All right. What if I said the data shows actually the main side effect of this is that your grades are going to go up because there's a huge literature on this now that actually lack of sleep is one of the main predictors of worse academic performance because of how sleep it works in the brain. So like you could be up all night studying, but if the brain can't integrate the information, it, you draw a blank, you make dumb mistakes, you forget things, you can't draw connections when if you were well rested, you'd be able to. So you actually score worse. So sometimes more time studying, less time sleeping actually is a bad deal. But anyway, all right. So I say the main effects is your grades will go up. And actually the other main side effects of this is that your relationships will probably improve because that's another big thing. Your mental health will get a little bit better. And the thing that a lot of them didn't even realize is that sleep is very closely tied to weight and metabolism. So you'll be less likely to gain weight, more likely to manage your weight, and you'll be feeling better during the day. Those are the main effects you'll get. Would you spend that extra time on that workout? They all said yes. So I'm like, all right. The other thing is you could do it in your bedroom and it's free. The problem is if it costs money, they'd probably be more likely to do it because that's how human nature is because we make excuses for things that are free. But the truth is that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about sleep as a cost. We're talking about sleep as an investment. Like, is it worth doing? And so that's my question. Is it worth it to you? If it's not worth it to you, don't do it. But if those are things that are worth, would you pay for them? How much would you pay to have your grades go up? How much would you pay someone to be able to help manage your weight, crave less junk food, have more energy during the day, be better focused? Like, what would you pay for that? What you need to pay is a little bit of time and you'll get that back. Most of the time you will. I mean, obviously not 100%, but most people get more time back than they put into it. It's a good deal. You know what this sounds like? I love the strategy of investment. And, you know, this is almost like a guaranteed investment. Like I'm playing with the stock market now. So like you weren't just saying to me, this is a winner. Like this is going to pay back. You're not going to lose with this by getting more sleep because all these wonderful things are going to happen. So your return on investment is going to be fabulous. Just get some sleep. Right. I mean, that that's the thing where, where rather than seeing it as a cost, you see it as an investment. Another thing I talk to them about is something I want to talk to listeners about. If I had one sleep tip that I think is applicable to pretty much anybody that could help in a problem and can prevent problems, what it would be is a thing called stimulus control. Stimulus control was a behavioral psychology thing that came out of the 1970s, but it works beautifully related to sleep. Where it comes from is, if you are in a situation that has a very limited number of behaviors that you could engage in, just by being in that situation will help you engage in those behaviors. So here's a way to think about it. A lot of people hate going to the dentist. You're sitting in the dentist chair. They haven't even walked in yet. You're already kind of anxious and on edge, right? Because you've learned that that place is tied with, you know, things to be stressful about. 
And it gets to the point where that's learned. Your brain's a pattern recognition machine. It learns that pattern pretty quickly. Whenever you're in that dentist chair, you know, bad things happen. So then what happens is you're in the waiting room. You're already starting to get stressed out. You're in the car on the way over there. You're already starting to get stressed out. You're thinking about the appointment tomorrow. You're already stressed out because you've learned that that place and that situation is tied with a very limited set of outcomes and you don't like them. And so you learn that so thoroughly that you can be in that chair stressed out and uncomfortable and nothing even happened yet. You're responding to an event that hasn't even happened because you're already preparing yourself for it. Another great example on the positive end would be like people who go to the gym. So even if you're tired and exhausted and you're hungry, you walk through the door most of the time, you can make it all the way through your workout without a problem. And then you're even extra hungry and extra tired at the end. It's just that when you're there, that's all you do there. So your ability to get into that zone and make it through is heightened by the fact that that's all you do there. But if instead, when you go to the gym, sometimes you work out, but sometimes you eat lunch there and you socialize there and do all these other things, the ability of that place to put you in that positive zone gets diluted by these other experiences. So the pattern becomes more fuzzy, so your brain can't get into that zone so much easily. So this happens in bed. What we want is we want the bed to be like the gym for working out, we want the bed to be for sleep. That even if your brain is kind of active and you're kind of stressed or worried about something or, or whatever, you get into bed, the bed itself puts you into that zone because you know, you recognize that pattern of being in bed puts you to sleep. The bed becomes a trigger for sleep even with other things going on. That's what you want. But what people end up doing is they lose sleep for one reason or another, whether it's stress or something, and then they spend time in bed not sleeping. So they get into bed, they can't sleep. Then eventually they fall asleep. They get into bed, they can't sleep. Eventually they fall asleep. Or they get into bed, then they wake up, and then they can't get back to sleep, but they stay in bed. So then what happens is you learn without even realizing it. You recognize the pattern that when I get into bed, sleep is not inevitable. Maybe I'll sleep, maybe I won't. Will I? I'm not sure. And sometimes over time, you sort of expect that you're not going to fall asleep relatively quickly. So you prepare for that. Or when you wake up during the night, sometimes you know it's, you're going to be up for a while. So when you wake up, before you even realize that your first thought is, am I going to be able to get back to sleep or not? Maybe not. And so what happens is you've learned that pattern. And just like you're responding to a dentist who hasn't even walked in the room yet, you're responding to an arousal, a physical and neurophysiological activation that might not even be there because you learn the pattern. So you get into bed and just by being in bed for an extended period of time awake, you train yourself that the bed is not reliably for sleep. And if anything, the bed might be the place where you start getting used to thinking and worrying. So it becomes a thinking and worrying place, not a sleep place. And so the solution for this can get complicated, but the simple solution for this is break that cycle. If you are not going to fall asleep, if you know you're not going to fall asleep right away, don't even get into bed. Don't set yourself up for that connection. If you get into bed and you cannot fall asleep, whether it's the beginning of the night or the middle of the night, and like 20, 30 minutes has gone by, get up. Even if you just have to reset for five minutes, you don't want this act of extended time in bed. Sometimes you might need to get up for 30, 45, 50 minutes. You might even sleep less that night. But the thing is, you're not creating that cycle that's going to take over in the future. You're preventing that from taking root. Or if it already has taken root for you, you're breaking it and you're not watering those roots anymore.
You're waiting for them to sort of wither. The bed is to sleep. Okay, the bed is not to read. The bed is not to watch TV. The bed is not the place to watch Netflix. The bed is only to sleep. And so therefore, if you do all these other things in bed, you're not going to train yourself that the bed is to sleep. Exactly. But there's a problem in college students because for a lot of college students, their bed is also their office and their bed is also their couch. So I have a recommendation for people who say, but I do everything in bed because I don't really have a place to go. What I would say is that there is actually a hack to this. If you create a distinct line between the sleeping bed and the waking bed, you could be okay. So here's an example. If you are in bed and you don't want to be sleeping, don't send mixed signals to your brain, your pattern recognition machine brain, that this is a sleep opportunity. So one way to do this is don't lay down. At least sit up or at least lean up. Don't be in a sleeping position. Don't close your eyes. Don't be under a blanket or at least don't be under the blanket you use to sleep. Don't have your head on a pillow. Even ideally, sit up and especially be in a part of the bed you don't sleep in. So at the foot of the bed. So for example, if so we're 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 under quarantine right now. It's a pandemic. I don't I don't have a home office. So sometimes I need to work in a, with a room with a door that closes and sometimes that's my bedroom and I don't have a chair in there. So I have to sit on my bed. But what I'm sitting on is the foot of the bed because it's not the part of the bed that my brain associates with sleep at all. It's a totally different world. And so it prevents me from from watering down that that bed sleep connection. That's a great hack. In other words, divide the bed up. The bottom part of the bed is the sitting, reading, watching Netflix, but you don't lay down on the top half of the bed until you're ready to go to sleep. Exactly. Exactly. That's a way to follow, you know, you can follow stimulus control while actually still being in bed. Because some people, like older adults, it's not really great for them to get out of bed in the middle of the night because they might, you know, hurt themselves if they're going up and down stairs or you know, there's some people who can't leave the room. I mean, even something as silly as some people have pets. And if, if I get up and get out of bed, the dog's awake and there's my night. So like, there's lots of reasons for this. And so that's why, you know, the sleep community has come up with this strategy and tested it out and shows that it works. Can you just talk a little about the screen uh, media and blue light? So like, if I am watching Netflix at the end of my bed uh, or on the computer, how is that affecting my ability to go to sleep? So yeah, so screens impact sleep in three ways. The first is through light. The second is through mental activation. And the third is through distraction. Here's a rundown of the light issue. Our brain has a clock in it that's set to about 24 hours. And in that 24-hour biological day, there's a part of it set aside for night and a part of it set aside for daytime. And the part that's set aside for night, there's all this biology underlying our bodies preparing ourselves for sleep, getting ourselves ready for sleep, and when it wants to be asleep, so the body switches modes to get into a sleep. This internal 24-hour cycle, it's biological. It's not precise to the minute. So what we do is we use the external environment as a cue to keep ourselves all on the same cycle. So the biology around this is mostly around light, but you can also use movement and other social interactions and food. But light is by far the most important input to the signal because you know, we evolved in an equatorial climate with bright days and dark nights that were reliable. And so all humans needed to be on the same schedule. We literally set our watch by the sun. And so we use what our brain thinks is sunlight to tell, okay, is it dawn now? Is it daytime? Is it dusk? Is it nighttime? And we use that to constantly give feedback to the clock to make sure it's resetting and being in the right spot. So that's fine. 
except we invented artificial light. And our biology hasn't quite figured that out yet. So what happens is at night, it's expecting darkness. And when the eye senses darkness, it sends a signal to the clock in the brain to start preparing to produce melatonin because melatonin is a hormone that tells the rest of your body it's nighttime. And so in the evening, you'll start producing it. When it's still light out, actually, you'll often start producing a little bit of melatonin when it's anticipating it's going to get dark. And then as it gets darker, your melatonin ramps up. Now, light suppresses melatonin. So when you get a bright light pulse where your brain isn't expecting it, when you're secreting melatonin, it suppresses it and it can throw off the system. Even more impactful is this idea that if you're in an environment where it's too light, even that initial ramp up of melatonin in the evening can get pushed later and later and later, especially in teenagers, young adults, people between the ages of, say, 15 and 25, people in that age group, their biological night is actually naturally much later than someone who's older than that. So already, you know, I am 40. I look at the clock. The clock says midnight. My body says it's about midnight. When I was 20 and I looked at the clock and it said midnight, my body said, oh, it's 10 p.m. That's just how it goes. And so you're already predisposed to staying up later. So your body's already looking for excuses to start the night later. And then what you do is you give it light at a time when it's searching for any hint of darkness and it can't find it. So then it pushes it even later and keeps you up even later, especially light in the blue-green spectrum. And that's what the computer, when you're watching Netflix and things, you're getting that blue light? Yeah, the cells in the eyes that send information to the clock are only really sensitive to light that's either blue, green, or especially like aqua teal color in the middle. That's where it's most sensitive. So like red, orange, yellow light actually doesn't really do much to the clock. It's only that blue-green light, which is really cool because you think about what's the color of the sky, what's the color of daytime in the natural world. There's lots of blues and greens, the ocean, like these are all these colors. That's what evolution figured out is a daytime frequency of, of light. White light does this too because white contains all the colors. So especially blue-enriched white light that you get a lot from the screens. So what's happening is if it's a TV on the other side of the room, it actually won't do very much because the light is all dissipating around the room. But if you have a screen that's only inches from your face, all that light is going straight into your eye. Even though computer screens are actually not nearly as bright as TVs, it's just the TV's so far away, the light's all dissipating before it even reaches you. But for the screen, it's going straight into your eyes. So what's happening is you're getting this flood of light straight into the eye that sends a signal to the clock that, oh, is this still daytime? I'm not sure. And so what happens is it keeps you up longer than you intended to. So it keeps you from getting sleepy and keeps you in a daytime mode. So that's the light issue. And that's why blue, green, and also white are what count more than other lights. So if you have a blue blocking glasses or even a screen filter that blocks out more of the blue light, that might help. That's absolutely fascinating. And, you know, I love the flip of sleep's not an investment, it's not a cost. I think that's the most important thing at this. Invest it, invest it, invest it, because the payback is going to be absolutely huge. And I love the fact that, you know, when you go to sleep, train yourself to lay down that you're going to sleep and don't use it for the kitchen table and for, you know, laying down and doing your homework. Use your bed for sleeping or another part of your bed if you're in a dorm and you have to, you know, 
know, use it for your desk, for example. So all these things are terrific. I'm getting those blue glasses. And this is all great because, you know, this is a time, you know, when you're young that you could be absorbing so much information and applying it and doing dynamic things in your life. And if it got the adequate amount of sleep, you could be like a, a fabulous warrior and set your life on fire. Dr. Michael and I are old, so, you know, we can't do as much with the information that we get. But you, anybody that's young, this is like crazy for you not to invest in sleep because you could just set the world on fire with it, just getting adequate amount of disease. Well, Dr. Michael, I want to thank you for coming on Spot Eye, and I am going to sleep better tonight because of you. That is great, and hope everyone does. Thank you. Thank you. Spot On is supported by the Boston University Sargent College's Master of Science degree in Nutrition program. Log on to bu.edu to learn more about this fabulous nutrition graduate program. Thank you for listening to Spot On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This way you'll get every new episode every week. And by the way, leave us a nice review. And can you also like us on our Spot On Facebook page and suggest topics for future episodes? Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Joan Salji Blake. And oh, by the way, can you send this episode to five of your friends? Do I ask a lot of you?